0: Okay, while the kids continue to hand out those sheets, uh, why don't we stand and read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1? And I want Eddie to read this because she's so good at reading scripture. I'm terrible. Sorry about that. But maybe I should slow down when like she does and I get it better. But now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And are gathered together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as it is from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed from Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Please be seated. Some of you may be wondering as to why we're reading from Thessalonians this morning, considering we were scheduled to return to Revelation. The answer is simple, and it's because of where we've arrived in John's letter. You see, we've come to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And beginning with this chapter until the end, we are going to encounter all sorts of strange and interesting phenomena and things. For example, living creatures with faces like lions, with eyes in front of their heads and in the back of their heads. We're going to discover beasts with ten horns and and seven heads. We're going to see hailstones that weigh a hundred pounds. And we're also going to see specific mentions to time, we're going to see things, we've already seen, you know, 10 days. We're going to see 1260 days on one more than one occasion. And we're going to see something to the reference of a thousand years. Now because I know you all so well, and, I, and this is a privilege of mine to know you well, you are going to come to me between Revelation chapter 4 and the end, and you're going to ask me all sorts of questions about how this all fits together timeline-wise. And what do these dates mean, and what does this mean in terms of sequence? You know how much is for the first century, how much is for the future? So I'm going to take a preemptive strike today, and I'm going to do a timeline for you to clear up anything so that when we go forward, you don't have to ask me questions about the timing of things. It'll be clear. As well, hopefully it'll be clear. <laughs> but we're not going to use revelation. And you might say, why not use revelation to get my timeline? If you haven't heard my first two sermons in Revelation, you need to listen to them because it sets the precedence for how we interpret the book. So I encourage you to do that. But remember, Revelation is an apocalyptic genre. It uses Lord of the Rings type uh, pictures and Narnia type sequences and imagery and language to convey spiritual truths. Every detail is not meant to be taken literally. But instead you look for the literal truth, spiritually, that they are meant to be conveyed. If taken literally, friends, you've got a major problem on your hands. And here's why. Revelation 12.4 says that Satan, who's the dragon, has a tail so big, he will wipe one-third of the stars away from the skies. Yet the same dragon appeared in the Garden of Eden to tempt Eve. How does his tail fit in the Garden? When he can light a third of the universe's stars and make them fall to earth. Another problem we have is in, in Philadelphia. We just preached on this in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, If you overcome this world, you will be a pillar in my temple. Yet in Revelation 21 and 22, he says, There's no temple there because God's presence is, is all you need. A seeming contradiction. But my favorite part of the Revelation, which changed my entire outlook, is the second coming of Christ occurs four times in Revelation. Four times. Chapter 6, 11, 14, and 19. If it's a sequence of linear events, Jesus has returned four times. So we can't use Revelation to determine a timeline. Because we're going to get up into all sorts of trouble, hence all the diverging views in Christianity about what Revelation is saying. So, what are we going to use? We're going to use five New Testament texts that, when you look at them as a cohesive unit, have no contradictions that I can see. Five different texts written to five different, well, two to the same church, other places, no contradictions. A total cohesive unit, total harmony. It's when you add Revelation to the mix that you get into trouble. And you will find that Revelation won't fit in really well to those five New Testament texts. Now why is that important? When these authors wrote the New Testament letters, Revelation hadn't been written yet. So they aren't even thinking Revelation theology. The book doesn't exist until around 90 AD. And all these New Testament texts are written around 50 to 60 AD. So you see the conundrums we have here, but also to think back to the first century and what it was like to be a Christian back then and through the apostles' and church's eyes. So I'm gonna say one more thing by way of introduction, or maybe two things. I'm not sure, well actually I think I know why, but this is a really sensitive area for people. The second coming of Jesus and the events that surround his returning, like it's sensitive. I have a friend, personal friend, who ended up in psych ward in Calgary because he couldn't handle the, all these, like all these things, he just—he he just drove him crazy. Um, I've known in the in the Christian circles, if I want to get in an argument with anybody, the fastest way to do it is discuss discuss divorce and remarriage, women in ministry, whether you can lose your salvation, which we've seen happen twice in this church already, in dialogue, and end times. If I want to stir a hornet's nest, you go down those paths. They're the most sensitive areas in people's lives. So I'm just going to say this, I come to you with absolute humility, knowing that I've changed my mind in this area on two separate occasions. When I met Janice, I sat her down and I said, this is how it's going to end. And I stand here before you now going, I was so wrong and basically everything I told my wife 13 years ago when I first met her. But what's changed me is the Word of God and the new understanding from Scripture as I've been exposed to it. We don't study theology at Genesis House. We study the Bible. So if if I have a teacher that teaches me principles, and I trust him, I'll trust him. But if the Bible contradicts my teacher, I go with the Bible. And I'm going to show you how um, I've come to understand the Scriptures. And here's the awesome thing. If you think I'm wrong in my interpretation, you have ample opportunity and dialogue to say you're wrong. And I'm like, okay, let's have a debate. Let's have a fun conversation. And you know what? I might be wrong on one or two little things. And I'd be willing to change like I have over the years. But here's the cool thing. We get to do this together. And so, again, if you don't agree with me in the end, you are still welcome in this church. I will not treat you any differently. And I will still, yeah, you still have the same place in my heart as you always have. And you can, you're always welcome here. So you're okay to disagree. And it will not be a divisive thing or an area that will end our relationship, the ability to worship here. Alright, so again, some tremendous men and women who have great minds would uh, probably have their hand up all the time as I'm preaching this message today. Okay, here's a typical timeline. The one that I taught Denise 13 years ago when she first asked people about end times. This is, very, this is pervasive in North America. The first coming of Christ happened 2,000 years ago. We are now entered into the church age. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back in a rapture. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to remove his church out of this world. So they do not have to face the great tribulation of the man of lawlessness we just read about. For seven years it's going to be hell on earth like we've never seen before. Jesus will come back, which we've been singing about all, all morning. And he's going to then destroy the Antichrist, all of the rebellious people. The millennial reign will happen, which is a thousand years long. Jesus will set up the temple, his kingdom, he will reign. At the end, Satan will be, will be released and there will be a giant fight again. And then we enter into eternity. That's the, that is the pervasive typical view. And that if you listen to the radio on 700, 1140, you will hear that over and over. It's constant. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, let's find out. Oh, before we start though, on this, I need to thank two people. First of all, Laura, for the great title. Those of you who don't get the joke, there's a book for pregnant women called this. <laughs> and so, when I was telling her what I was gonna preach on, she goes a little bit about that, I'm like, oh, brilliant. So, I also wanna thank Laurel, because Laurel, every slide you're gonna see going forward with a timeline is from her, and she did it in like, a few minutes as opposed to my, like, what's taking me hours to do, and uh, Those of you who know her, she does everything well. So mine wouldn't have looked like this if I did them. (laughs) All right. Let's read Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as as if it was from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, I want to start with Thessalonians for two reasons. First of all, Paul's writing to them to clear up a question. A question that we're asking ourselves today. Well, similar question. What happens at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? But the problem with these guys is they're confused. Because some things arrive, some ones are in their church saying, you've missed the day of the Lord. You pick that up in verse 2, right? Don't, be, so don't take it like if a message or letter comes that, saying that the day of the Lord has come. It's not come. He says, some things have to happen before it's come. You can imagine how frustrated and confused the, and scared the church would have been, right? To think they missed the Christ's return. And you're sitting there as a believer going, oh my goodness, like what happens to me now in terms of eternity with Jesus not coming, with me missing that? So that's a, a really important question he's trying to address. But here's what I love about that. The Thessalonians are regular people like you and I. They're not scholars. They're not theologians. They're not going to seminary. They're just like you and I. Just sort of lay people sitting in the congregation. Who have a love for the Lord and love for His word. So Paul's intention here is not to complicate things. He's not going to write a complicated message to try to explain it. It's going to be pure and simple. And so... I pray right now that I don't complicate you by making things way more complicated. I hope that my message to you is very clear and very pure and simple. So Paul's going to write it to us in a simplistic way. And he wants to bring some things to mind. Now the first thing you have to notice here is how he defines the day of the Lord. He defines the day of the Lord from verse 2. It's got two components. He says you brethren you need to know about the coming of our lord jesus christ and our gathering together to him so you can define the day of the lord in this way there's a coming of jesus and a gathering of the believers that's the way you define the day of the lord right those two components now this is really important for us because the day of the lord the coming the word coming is the word parousia in greek it means the presence or arrival. So when Jesus comes, it means he's going to be present with us. Or it means his arrival. So that's what it means. And, and, and this is going to be really relevant for all five texts going forward. So whenever you see the word coming, the ones I'm going to show you, it means parousia. That's what the day of the Lord means, perusia. But it also has the gathering together with him. And the word gathering is only used one other place in the, in the Bible. In Hebrews 10.25. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the word together, and the word gathering is the same word, which makes sense. We're gathered here, and we're together here. It's interchangeable. But I love it. He says the day of the Lord. One day, not two. The day. So now we have it, right? We understand what the day of the Lord means. The day of the Lord, according to 2 Thessalonians is defined this way. It's His coming, the parousia, and our gathering. It's clear from the text. That is not complicated to understand. So, the first thing we learn on our timeline, if you want to write these things down, is that the second coming of Christ, that, that's a, our term, hey? Second coming, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. That's what us Christians think. But when we refer to the second coming, we're referring to the day of the Lord, or the parousia. So if you say the day of the Lord, that means second coming. If you say the parousia, that means second coming. There's no ambiguity there in the, in the New Testament scriptures. So Paul then says this there's two events that have to occur before I come back and gather you. Two events. First, verse 3. No, let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the first thing that's to come is the apostasy. The apostasy. That word you actually is a rebellion. It can mean rebellion. And in your Bible, some of you in your translations will have rebellion. They're not apostasy. Now in classical Greek, it's a term for a political or military rebellion. But what I like about this here, it says the apostasy. The the defines it. It's a system. It's not an apostasy, it's the apostasy. It's like a giant rebellion. It's a system of rebellion. But it's worldwide. It's gonna be a religious one. One who, it's opposed to God. It's opposed to God. And it's, what, uh, when Dan and Bryce and I were preparing, the phrase came out, it's a, it's a worldwide anti-God sentiment. A worldwide anti-God sentiment. That's the apostasy. That's to be expected before Jesus comes back. And so, within that, though, they're going to have flippant attitudes. The world's going to have flippant attitudes towards God. So let's look at some of them. In Second or First Peter, actually, let's just say Second Peter. By the way, that's a typo. That's Second Peter. He says this, know this first of all, but in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The word parousia. You could interchange day of the Lord there if you want. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So people in the world are going to, in our day, are going to say, everyone, Christ is coming back, prepare your hearts for His coming. And the world's going to say, oh, whatever, God's a joke, you're a loser, there's no such thing. In fact, everything's going to continue as it always has. This Life's just going to go on, He's not coming back. I don't have to change my life. It's, it's going to be the same today in the future as it was like a few years ago. Nothing's changing. But along with this, they're going to say peace and safety, peace and safety. For first, Acts, so first Thessalonians 5, he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord, the parousia, will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety. So not only is Christ not coming back, I've got nothing to worry about. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm, my life's peaceful, man. This is going to go on as it is. And Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 24, when He describes His coming. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be as the coming of the Son of Man. The parousia. That's the same word again. You <laughs> see the theme, church. <laughs> For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day they of the ark. So when Noah's day... Noah, as a preacher of righteousness going, the world is going to be flooded and judged by, or not, he didn't know that yet. Actually, he did know that. He's building an ark. Yeah, he's judging, the world's going to judge the world. God's going to judge the world. See, talking about making simple things confusing. <laughs> God's going to judge the world, and the world's going, no, he's not. Everything's going to continue just as it always has been. And Noah says, no, it's coming. And, and Jesus says, just like in Noah's day, it's going to be, in our day. People are going to be continue to get married, and they're going to be eating and partying it up, and they're going to be like, nah. So we see the attitude, right? The anti worldwide sentiment, rebellion against God, thinking their life's secure, there's peace, life goes on as usual, nothing to worry about. Second thing he says must occur is the man of lawlessness must appear, in verse 3. And he describes it this way. He's the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god of object of worship, So he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This guy shows up, you're going to notice someone who's going to be arrogant. He's going to be extremely pompous. He's going to see himself as an object of worship. And he's going to oppose God and set himself up in the seat of the temple. Now is that temple metaphorical or literal? I'll give you two options. Many believe it's going to be a literal temple which will be built in Jerusalem and he will take a seat in Jerusalem. That could be possible in that the Jews right now are training people in the Levitical priesthood to re-enter into ministry. They've actually built furniture for the temple. Laurel and I saw it when we were there. We saw the candelabra at the temple. So they're building the furniture from the Old Testament. They're moving towards it. The big problem is the Temple Mount is not is being occupied by the Muslims, and uh, there were and the, the famous Dome of the Rock. So a lot would have to shift politically for the Jews to access and get gains to that Temple Mount and rebuild something. At least a major shift would have to go on. But many commentators think it's metaphorical, and here's why. In Ezekiel 28:2, this is what it says. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am the God. I sit on the throne of God's in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. And so many commentators think it's probably going to be impossible for a temple to be built in Jerusalem. And so this idea is that this guy is just like so proud and, but he'll have a voice in this world, and he'll make himself out to be God, and so it looks like he seats in the seat of God. Anyway, regardless, if you believe in literal temple, that's something you can look out for. But if you don't, if you believe a metaphor, metaphorical temple, then you can look out for a man who exalts himself in this way. And whatever you think of the leaders so far, they haven't made like, they haven't made those claims that I'm aware of. So if you want to make Donald Trump the the, the, the guy, like he never claimed to be God, you know what I mean? So just, these are things to be, to be, look out for. But here's the key point from this passage. He gets defeated by Christ at the parousia. And he goes down. Verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, the coming again is the Perusia. He destroys them at his coming. But he does give us one extra attribute we should look at here in verse nine. He says that he's one who will come like uh, the Antichrist will come with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with the deception of wickedness. So we know again he's going to come. His speech will be accompanied by uh, signs and wonders. And he will be a deceiver, which will result in um, people's falling after him, but their ultimate defeat by Christ. So now, let's look at the timeline. On the day of the Lord, the Perusia, the rebellion will come. It will be peace and safety. That's the attitude of the world. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. And the man of lawlessness will be defeated. He will be defeated. All and the, and the defeat of the man of all, says, is at the second coming, right? The, the other two events precede that. But he will be defeated at the day of the Lord when Jesus returns in the parousia. So now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3. You can turn there if you want, but I have the PowerPoints here if you want to read them. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Know this. First of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Perusia. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at this time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, by his word, The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, the day of the Lord, okay? Uh, Because of the heavens which will be destroyed by burning and the elements which will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look at all the things that have to happen on the parousia on the day of the Lord. Let's go back to the first slide. First of all, notice that the parousia is linked... With the day of the Lord again. Super important. And now look at all the events that must take place with it. What do we learn new? That 2 Thessalonians hasn't taught us. First, we learn that just like the world was destroyed with water, God is going to judge it again by fire. Fire is going to be the means of... The element of fire is going to burn up this world as opposed to water like He did in the past. And it's going to actually not only take out the world, but the inhabitants of it who reject Him. So when the, when the flood came, people died by drowning. People will die by being burned. This is how it's going to come. The second, though, was a description. Something else new. Secondly, uh, the description of the manner in which he becomes. When, which Jesus comes. He comes like a thief. Now the context is key here. Who is he coming like a thief for? His church? No the people who are going to be destroyed. He's coming like a thief for those who are ungodly. Right? That's what's going to happen. Which is really important when we get to another text, which you, those of you who know where I'm leading, talk about what the, who the thief is coming for. So this is another thing we learn from here. The third thing we learn is that Immediately after judgment, Jesus establishes a new heavens and a new earth. Right right in the day of God, immediately after that, comes a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the word for righteousness is important. It's the opposite of unrighteousness. So when he sets up a new heavens and new earth and righteousness dwells, there's no unrighteousness. There's no wickedness. There's no evil. It's a new heavens and new earth. That's the picture that Revelation gives actually in chapter 20, 21. Establishment of God's kingdom. So now we turn to our PowerPoint uh, timeline again. What did we learn? Now we have the rebellion. We have the man of lawlessness. When Jesus comes, he comes like a thief for the unbelieving community, not for the Christian church. Then there will be a judgment by fire. The man of lawlessness will be defeated. He will set up a new heavens and a new earth, and righteousness dwells. No more wickedness, according to these verses. No ambiguity, a cohesive unit. So now we turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is an important chapter because some of the Corinthians are teaching that there's no resurrection. The resurrection doesn't exist. There's no, there's no, yeah, doesn't, doesn't. Um, it's not a reality. And so Paul spends 58 verses, 58, defending the need for the resurrection. And I'm going to quote from two of them. He says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death comes through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so Christ will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Perusia. Then the end will come. When He hands over the kingdom to God, to the Father, after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. This is consistent with what we've learned so far. Nothing in this verse is different than what we've learned so far. Let's keep reading. I declare to you brothers and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God um, Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable listen I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep But we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we Christians will be changed So what do we learn so far? A lot of consistencies from everything we've read. But here's what's new. Paul links three new understandings to the parousia. First, there'll be a resurrection of believers. Remember what 2 Thessalonians said? The day of the Lord, when He comes, He will gather us. Resurrection language. What does Paul say? He says, when I come, when Jesus comes, you will be resurrected. Gathered on the parousia. Totally consistent. And then he says, "Let me find it here. That we're going to, Jesus will receive his kingdom at that time. That's consistent with Peter. He says it will be a new heavens and a new earth. And now Jesus receives his kingdom to reign. And third, this will, the what will inaugurate this will be the sound of a trumpet from heaven, an announcement. So we go to the timeline. What did we learn new?" On the second coming, there'll be a trumpet sound. We will be raised. We will be raised, and judgment will come on the earth. We'll be resurrected, and judgment will come. The the man of volus is destroyed. When the new heavens are inaugurated, Christ also has his kingdom to reign in, and righteousness dwells there. Which leads me to the final text. Some of you are saying, Andrew, I still don't know where the rapture fits in. You've missed First Thessalonians 4. Let's turn as a church to 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're gonna read this together. I'll give you a minute to find it. 1 Thessalonians 4:13. the reason why this text is so important, friends, is that this text is unanimously used to prove the rapture of the believers will happen. But as we read, we're going to see that this, this text fits cohesively with everything we've just read. So let's start at verse 13. But we do not want you to be unaware or unaformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are also alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You will notice here the same language that we've seen so far. The coming of the Lord in verse seven, or verse 15 is the word parousia. It's the day. It's the same day in the previous text. Nothing's changed. The trumpet of God is blasted. The same trumpet that was sounded in 1 Corinthians 15, at the parousia. And we're again, you see being gathered, being resurrected, being caught up. It's different Greek words to describe the same language, or the same event. We're caught up, resurrected, to be with him. Now this is super, super important. Because this is not to be confusing again. The only difference that we learn here is in a resurrection order. There's a resurrection order. We learn here that those who are in the graves will rise first. And those who are alive will rise second. That's important because the Thessalonians are worried. They want to know what happens to people who are dead in the grave when Jesus comes back. Have they missed it? So they're actually worried, thinking, oh my goodness, if I've died before Christ has come back, I'm toast, I'm stuck in the ground. And Paul says, not only are you not toast, you're God's priority. You get to go first. And those who are alive are second. So that's the only thing new here. Someone might say, but it says we're going to be caught in the air. We're going to be caught in the air. Well, in rapture theology... We are taught that we go to heaven, aren't aren't we? You will go to heaven, and seven years later you'll come back. When you look at the words air and clouds in Greek, that's not the heavens, friends. The air and clouds is a reference to this hemisphere that you can visibly see. The same word for clouds is used at the transfiguration, when the disciples went on the mountain. And I've been to Israel. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny. They call them mountains. We call them mohills, man. Like those things are small. Like they think they're cool, giant mountains. They're, they're like our Rockies just absolutely obliterate these things, right? So, like they're pretty small mountains. They're mountains nonetheless. But you know, it says they'll It says there in Matthew 17:5 that while Jesus was speaking, a cloud overshadowed them with a voice and spoke to them. The cloud was visible to the disciples. It overshadowed them. The air is the same word for atmosphere, and listen to how Paul uses it in First Corinthians nine six. I do not box as one beating the air. Where is the air he's boxing? Shadow boxing. It's right in front of them. It's right in front of them. It could be air could be also five hundred feet up where the clouds are or whatever, but it's also right in front of you. But here's the point: air and clouds is this hemisphere. It's visible. It's not the heavens. It's a different word. And and this is even more important, a lot of people say, but Andrew, like, the Christians have to get out of the way and go to heaven so that God can protect them from judgment. You know what's powerful, one of the most important things I've learned in the last year in my studies? Did you know, or you, you will know when I say this, God never once removed anybody from this world to judge it when he did judgments in the Old Testament. They were always protected here on this earth Egypt and the ten plagues They were living in Goshen in the land of Egypt. It was pitch black They could not see in Egypt and Goshen light and God made the Sun dark All the plagues with black sess on to the first three or four plagues it seems that everyone got hit with them but from like, like plague four on or whatever only Israel was protected, and Egypt got it in the same land. Noah and the flood. A world catastrophe. Where did Noah go? didn't leave this planet. God provided him shelter in this earth and the boat. And my favorite of all. And I thank Shauna because we had a coffee about this. Because we were talking and I'm like, oh, i got to use that. Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach,, Meshach, and Abednego. they don't worship the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, and the punishment was to be thrown into a furnace so hot that was going to kill him. It was, it was like stoked to seven times hotter than the norm. When the soldiers brought these three men to him, they died from the heat of the fire. So the soldiers are carrying these three guys to throw them in. They die with the proximity to the heat. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he's to see how they, if they, like, you know, what's happened, and he sees four standing in the fire when only three were put in there. And he calls out. Now let's look at this. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise thee to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. How is God going to judge this world? By water? No, by fire. Yet he protected three men in a blazing furnace that melted the inhabitants around it. Do you think God is limited to protect his saints? When he judges this earth, if he can protect three men in a furnace? <laughs> if you think he is, then we have a different conversation to have in dialogue. If he can protect three, he can protect millions. So, here's my point. If we do go up into the air, or the clouds a little bit, that's, I, can, I can handle that. But we're not leaving this hemisphere going off into some heavenly realm. We're within this context. Not only that, I noticed in my observation or my studies yesterday, we, he, dis, he destroys the heavens and earth with fire. So if we're in the clouds, like the heavens are going to be in an uproar, but we're going to be protected. But God can do that every time He hands judgment on the world, He protects His saints, and so we can be protected in the midst of that. We don't have to go very far for God to have our backs. Super cool. If you keep on reading now, the reason why rapture theology gets so powerful is they stop reading at verse... They stop reading at verse 15. But there were no chapters and verses in the original text. Keep reading with me for five verses. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. Actually let's let's start at 15 and we'll take a running start. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now... As to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord, (laughs) there it is again, will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them, suddenly like the labor pains upon a woman and child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, and the day will overtake you like a thief, through your all sons of light. Friends, it is absolutely consistent throughout all of Scripture as to what these New Testament Apostles are teaching to the New Testament churches. And we'll finish with this. There's one more item that we haven't talked about that's outside of this text in terms of what to look for when Christ before Christ comes back. And that's God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And you'll notice on this timeline, I added Israel's conversion. Israel's conversion. The nation of Israel started with one man. God appeared to a guy named Abraham and blessed him and said, you know what, I'm going to make a nation out of you and Ultimately, the Messiah is going to come out of you. So there were no Jews or there was no Jewish nation pre, uh, in, uh, Before Abraham was first chosen. He was the first in essence Jew a Gentile convert to Judaism who became the, the race of the Jews After this uh, God in that promise in that covenant said I will give you the land of Canaan forever Canaan is Israel. I will give you that land forever Genesis thirteen twelve god sealed the deal in a unique way it was a one-sided covenant when he had the animals killed and cut in two only god walked through the covenant he didn't let abraham walk through when you make a covenant with someone normally two people pass through the covenant and you both say i'm going to agree to this god said no this is so perpetual I don't want man screwing this up. (laughs) I'm going to walk through this on my own. And I'm going to fulfill this this, this deal. Because relying on these turkeys is never going to get done, Right? So God walks through the covenant, through the animals, by himself. The land is Israel's forever. The question then is, well if it's forever, why hasn't Israel ever occupied it forever? Why has the land been desolate so much? Leviticus 26 says this. He said this to Israel, If you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility towards you. And in two ways, he says, I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. So, Israel, if you don't obey me, two things are going to happen. You're kicked out of the land of Israel. You're going to be scattered around the world, at that time, the nations. And a sword's going to come after you. That's the predictions. And so what do we see in Biblical history? Assyria scatters them for disobedience. Babylon scatters them for disobedience. Rome takes them out in AD 70. And then Jesus makes an interesting prediction about His, end, his coming back in, in Luke 21 and 24. He said this, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So Jerusalem will be trampled and scattered, basically, until the Gentiles' time is fulfilled. Well again, in 8070, they were trampled by, uh, by Rome. And Israel, under Gentile rule, was under Gentile rule then for the next, like basically 1900 years, or was desolate. So it was either occupied by different uh, nations, or it was desolate, until 1948. And in 1948, they became a nation because of Great Britain and the UN. Since then, they've never lost their nation. They're still in the land and they're flourishing. If you go to Israel, man, like you have no idea what you're in for. Like in terms of like this blessing and, and, and uh, incredible picture of what, like God's renewal in that, in that land. But again, he says, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. But when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Israel will now become allowed to have the land again, a promise that they will have it forever. And we see this happening in our time. I don't believe, based on scripture, that Israel will ever lose its nation ever again. They are there to stay. I believe the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Regarding the sword... Not much to say about that. Jews are the most persecuted people in the world, even in Canada. I forget what year it was, so don't. Um, I should have done my homework, but I, I, I just ran out of time. But is it was in 2017 or 18 or 19, somewhere. I looked up the most, like what were the hate, most uh, hate crimes in Canada? 19% were Jewish. 19% in Canada. That, that's like the highest. So whatever the media is telling you in terms of who's hated out there, the Jews are number one. At least two three years ago they were, 19% of the hate crimes reported in Canada. The sword is against them, they're hated. But even though they're back in the land and it's flourishing, they don't believe in Jesus Christ yet. According to Dan, who did the homework for, for me, 1.6% of, of Israel are Christian. one6 You know what's hilarious? Or not, not hilarious, it's actually a tragedy. When I did the thing for the ministry in the streets, 1.6% of Obatok's is Christian. We're the same as the Jewish nation, man. <laughs> and then Paul says this, though. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Back to Jesus' words. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn Godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. Israel in the future will become the first Christian nation ever to exist in the history of this world You say what do you mean by that well all of Israel will be saved as a nation They are going to serve Jesus Christ We've had we've been founded on Christian principles We've never no nation that I know of has ever been a Christian nation People still walk, like, didn't walk with the Lord, even when they were living in blessing. So, what did we learn? This is the final timeline. Everything put in together in one sequential cohesive unit. I know I've said a ton, and uh, a lot of people may have some questions. And I'm, like I said, I'm open for discussion. I know as I grow in my faith, I will learn more things and uh, realize that maybe I could have worded things a bit better or understood things more clearly. But from what I can see from uh, these texts, it's unequivocally one cohesive unit, there's no contradictions, and nothing is confusing. So let's have a time of dialogue.